What the bleep does the Bible say about swearing? Were Adam and Eve created with sinful desires? And should the foods we eat be considered part of our spiritual formation? I'm Preston Sprinkle, and you are listening to Theology in Raw. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I got a bunch of questions that were sent in by my Patreon supporters that I'm going to get to. And then after this week, I will return to interviewing several very interesting people uh, for the following weeks after that. Just so you know, I am trying to intertwine uh, interviews with questions and questions with interviews. I've been doing a lot of interviews lately. Uh, Last week, I did some questions, and this week, I'm going to do some more questions. So I am trying to balance it. Um, But because of the heavy load of questions that do come in, uh, I am going to largely focus on questions that come in from my Patreon supporters through my Patreon page. If you want to check that out, it's patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. And you can support the show for as little as five bucks a month, become a Patreon supporter, and become part of the glamorous, fabulous Patreon Theology in the Raw team. Okay, let's jump in. Uh, to these questions. And these questions are all over the map. And I'm just scanning them right here. What I usually do is I write down your question or copy and paste it and then just start thinking through it and, and jotting down some thoughts. And then if I need to do do some research and look up stuff and, and I'm just scanning this right now. And there's just so many different categories that we're going to dive into today. So uh, without further ado, first question, if marriage is to function as a metaphor for Christ in a church, why then does Jesus accommodate for divorce in cases of sexual immorality? Will Jesus divorce the church if she's unfaithful? It's as if the metaphor is accurate, except in terms of steadfastness, mercy, forgiveness, and costly love. And then the questioner goes on to say, which is more sinful and which is more metaphorically accurate, a heterosexual couple that divorces after one spouse cheats on the other, or a homosexual couple that maintains a lifelong monogamous relationship in spite of infidelity? This is part of a much larger question. I tried to just uh, read just bits and pieces of it because it was a really long question. I didn't want to read the whole thing. Basically, the question questioner is asking um, if, um, if there is biblical evidence for accommodation in terms of accommodation towards marriage in terms of sexual infidelity, then could there not also be accommodation in terms of same sex relationships? So in other words, we can acknowledge that marriage is between a man and a woman in the Bible, and we can acknowledge that marriage is for life and that for lifeness is tethered to the image of Christ in the church. But since there is accommodation in one, could there not be accommodation in the other? The accommodation of one is if there is sexual immorality, we have clear evidence in scripture that divorce is not sin. It's, it's Jesus' way of accommodating. Um, so could we also say the same thing for same-sex marriage? Okay, great question. Great question. And um, let me just give you some thoughts. Uh, first of all, sexual when it comes to sexual immorality and divorce, I, I've often wrestled with that because... Um, for the same reasons you are, uh, the questioner, um, I, you know, when you look in scripture and you see marriage mapped on God's faithfulness to his people, you would think that, and because that faithfulness is never, um, is forever is, you know, regardless of how sinful we are, God's faithful to us. 
um, you would think that um, marriage, therefore, would be absolute, that there would be no grounds for divorce. Uh, I think it's a little more complicated than that. Um, I mean, you do have, well, it, it also depends on your view of like, as we talked about last week, uh, can you lose your salvation? You know, if, if we deny him, will he deny us, you know, or if we fall away or, you know, end up rejecting Jesus, does that mean we're still in? Um, and in, in one sense, no. <laughs> um, now, well, in one sense, no, it, does, it means, well, it means we're not in anymore. Like if we deny Jesus, then we're not following Jesus by definition. We're not a Christian. We haven't persevered. We, the, the, the seed was not sown upon good soil. And so, um, but then I mean, we don't want to get lost in the weeds of, oh, was that person actually saved or not? Or did they just make a confession? It wasn't a genuine conversion. Did they really have the spirit and so on and so forth? But we do see, um, I mean, evidence in scripture that somebody could actually fall away from God, if you will. Um, and, and again, I'm just tabling right now the question of whether that person was actually a genuine follower in the first place. Now, when it comes to sexual immorality, why is sexual immorality or porneia grounds for divorce? And by grounds for divorce, I'm not saying that it should be even encouraged. I'm just saying that Jesus does make an exception that uh, divorce is not something he desires, but then he does say except in cases of porneia, sexual immorality. So why... Um, what, what's unique about sexual immorality? And this is where I think first Corinthians chapter six, uh, verses 10 to, I think it's 20. Well, no, no, sorry. But verses six, first Corinthians chapter six, verses 12 through the rest of the chapter. How's that? Where Paul focuses on, uh, the uniqueness of sexual sin. Every other sin's outside the body, but sexual sin is inside the body. It's, you know, it's who, who knows what he's getting at there. It's, it's not crystal clear. You got to do some study on that passage. But what we can see on just on the face of the text is that Paul does single out sexual sin as unique. And in terms of a marriage relationship, I think one could argue that sexual immorality essentially violates and destroys the one flesh covenant union. I know that that um, maybe sounds a little mysterious and abstract, but um, that, well, that's the point Paul, sort of the point that Paul makes in, in 1 Corinthians 6, is that when you have sex with a prostitute, you are one flesh with her. He uses marital language for that, so that you have, if you have committed sexual immorality while you're married, you have essentially broken off that one flesh union with your wife and joined in one flesh to another person. So, um, so you could at least see some reasoning behind sexual immorality being unique grounds for, uh, or yeah, unique grounds for divorce. And again, I just, you understand when I say grounds for divorce, I'm not saying that divorce must result if there is sexual immorality, but it, um, uh, but it, it would if somebody did get divorced in cases of sexual immorality, they are not in sin and they are free to remarry. Um, uh, because I, I I don't know my view, and I I mean I come from a divorced household. My parents are divorced, so I I, I get the you know the horrible reality of, of that. Um, but I I don't I don't I don't think it, divorce would ever even even if there was grounds for divorce, my general posture would be encourage not divorce um explore options even if they were there were grounds for divorce doesn't mean they should divorce i would always encourage 
sticking sticking it out, staying together. Um, now, uh, how does this correlate with same-sex marriage, same-sex relationships? I, I do see a difference here. I don't like, I don't, well, don't like, I, I don't think it's valid to map this accommodation, namely sexual immorality as grounds for divorce. I don't think it's good to map that onto, therefore, accommodating to same-sex marriage in the church. Um, for one glaring reason, I guess, is while we have biblical evidence that sexual immorality is something that Christians accommodate to, can accommodate to, we don't see the same thing with same-sex um with same-sex marriage. And we can think of other examples where there are grounds of accommodation and other examples in scripture where there are no grounds for accommodation. So, well, I mean here for in the sake of divorce, for the sake of, or in the case of divorce, there's biblical grounds for accommodation in the case of, let's just say adultery. There's no grounds for accommodation. It's not like there's ever a case where adul- adultery is, well, it's prohibited, prohibited, prohibited. But in this case, okay, we can accommodate. We don't see any biblical evidence for that. So we can, couldn't say, that because we see accommodation in terms of divorce, therefore there's accommodation in terms of um, of adultery. Okay, so we have to take each kind of question on its own terms and explore the biblical evidence for or against a possible accommodation. And so when we look specifically at same-sex marriage, or not even, see, I don't like that wording. I like to word it as when we look at biblical evidence for the fundamental um, structure of marriage, including sex difference as part of what marriage is, if I can put it like that. We don't see any sort of um, discontinuity or, um, or accommodation or anything that would suggest that marriage is, is, could in some cases not be between two sexually different persons according to Scripture. And this is something, if you, if you listen to my podcast a few weeks ago where I talked to Kevin uh, Nooner, uh, um, uh, where we debriefed my conversation with Justin Lee, this is something that we ca- we kind of went round and around on towards the end of that long two hour conversation. But that was my precise point that when we look at th- that, there's discontinuities and continuities, there's accommodations and there's no accommodations throughout Scripture. And and when you look at ethics as a whole, we see a whole web of complexity here, and we have to look at each ethical question um, on its own terms, and can't just look at a different ethical question and see evidence for accommodation and therefore say, okay, so now we can accommodate in this area of, of ethics. No, we have to look at each specific area on its own grounds and see the, the rhythms and statements in scripture regarding that specific ethical question. Uh, next question. Um, this one has to do with swearing. Um, uh, I have to admit that after listening to your podcast with the guys of the Bad Christian Podcast, I have listened to their podcast and have in the past enjoyed it. As you well know, they curse a lot. I haven't listened to their podcast so much anymore as I'm not sure it's edifying for me to do so. I don't think this is a primary issue in the church. Uh, I may not even It may not even be a secondary issue, and I actually hold a lot of grace when it comes to language, but I wanted to get your thoughts on using a cursing, well, this is, <laughs> I think it's a little typo here, cursive language <laughs> um, in light of certain passages passages in the New Testament. You, know, what, you didn't mean cursive language, but cursing language or cursing or cussing or, you know, bad words. And then he quotes uh, Colossians 3, 5 to 8, Ephesians four twenty nine, which says, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead... Um, let there be thanksgiving. Uh, let's see, Ephesians 5, 4, James 3, 7 to 12, Matthew 5, 23, and other passages. 
So what's, uh, what do I think about this? Um, I, so I wrote an article while black, a while back in relevant magazine called what the bleep does the Bible say about profanity? And it's also on my blog, on my personal website, pressandsprinkle.com. What the bleep does the Bible say about profanity? So I would just, I'm going to punt and, uh, we'll sort of punt and say, go read that article. I give, I, I answered, I, it's, it's a direct response to your, um, to your, uh, question here. In general, the passages that you quoted, uh, especially Colossians and uh, Ephesians, these are often taken to apply to modern day cussing. And I just don't think they directly do. There may be some crossover. I think there may be some implications from what Paul's saying there that could apply to modern day cussing. But the language in at least, let me see, two of those passages the Colossians, th- oh no, the Ephesians 4, 1, and um, yeah, I think the Colossians 3, 8, 1. I, I need to double check this one, but I know for a fact that the, the Ephesians 4, 29, and let no corrupting talk and obscene talk come from your mouth. The corrupting language is like rotten language. It's It's language that tears down instead of building somebody up. I mean, he has what Paul even says, but such that is good for building up. So it's more talking about slander, dehumanizing language, um, tearing somebody down, belittling somebody. Uh, gossip might even be included under that umbrella concept. So things that rotten speech that tears another person down. So if you're joking around with your with your friends and you you know and you call BS on something they said, only you know you actually said the word BS. And you can fill in the gaps. I'm not going to, I don't typically, or I don't think I've ever actually sworn on the podcast. Um, so I'm not going to do so here. But uh, yeah, I, I don't think that those verses would directly apply to people simply joking around and using language, uh, you know, using a modern day cuss word. Um, and all the language passages, they are all the language passages, the passages that talk about not using bad language, whatever. Um, they, they, I think they're all, if you look at the context and look at the point that the author is getting at, they are all rooted in the heart. And so there you have to, and I know this is kind of cliched, but I think in this conversation, it's incredibly important. Like, what is your heart? What is your motivation behind, behind using, um, uh, a bad word? Um, because what is a bad word? It's, it's certain noises coming out of your mouth. Right. And if a, Let's just say somebody came over from China. They don't know a lick of English, nothing. And they, you know, sounded out the word F-U-C-K. Maybe they added like uh, mother on the beginning of that word and maybe a uh, E-R at the end of that or something, you know. And if, what if they just sounded the noises out that that, that word would be pronounced as? Is that... Did they do, did they sin? Did they cuss? Well, the noises were there, but there's no heart. There's like, there's no heart intention there. There's not, there's no, it's disconnected from any kind of heart intention. I'm not saying just because you have good intentions, it means it's okay. I'm just saying that we ask, we have to always ask the question, what is the motivation? What is the heart? What's, what's going on inside of you? You know, um, that's, that's underlying the, the language that came out of your mouth. Um, and it, this also brings in some interesting cultural aspects. I mean, cuss words are culturally 
driven. Uh, they are confined to certain to, to a specific language, and they even change over time. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and it's really subjective. Like one person's offensive word is somebody else's, you know, common word. You know, I remember growing up. Um, uh, yeah, so growing up, fart was a bad word in my house. Couldn't say fart. It'd be like, <gasps> it'd be like it's like almost the F word, right? Um, but crap was okay. Like crap just meant garbage. Like, you know, I remember going out and cleaning out the crap in my, in the back, in the back seat of our car. We had, we were, you know, a bunch of kids in the back and we had a bunch of crap in, in the back seat and crap just meant like, you know, half eaten Cheerios and, you know, dirt and grime and all, you know, bubblegum wrappers and stuff like that. That was crap, you know, you know, so I, you know, I'd be, um, Hey mom, you want me to clean the crap out of the back? You see, yeah, 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 go do that. And then, you know, she's like, oh, sorry, I farted. Don't say fart. You know, it's like, well, you just told me to clean the crap out of the back seat. You know, so, and, and so there's a lot of inconsistency, not inconsistencies, let's just say subjectivity that goes into what even constitutes a cuss word. And what, what was a bad word 20 years ago or 40 years ago may not be a bad word today. And words change. And that's just how language works. And so there's, there's actually a lot of linguistic and cultural complexity when it comes to what constitutes a swear word and cussing and so on and so forth. Or even we can spill over to Christian film that I had a great, or yeah, this is coming up on the podcast with Rex Harson, but we talk about Christian, a Christian approach to watching film. And oftentimes we say, well, it's not a Christian film if it has cussing in it. It's like, okay, but what if, could you, and that, that may, maybe that, that's one perspective, but um, what if a film is trying to capture the real world and, um, and doesn't contain scenes with cussing in it when it's trying to capture the real world? Let's just say, you know, I, think, I always think of like Gran Torino, you know, Gran Torino, one of my favorite movies has several scenes where there's lots of cussing and it's like, you know, a scene where there's, um, a bunch of gangsters, right? Gangsters, gang members. <laughs> and, um, and it's really, it's, it's such a powerful part of the narrative of the, of the film that this, this, the, the pressure to, uh, fr- from the gangs, from these people that are trying to stay out of gangs, but they're, you know, they're, they're, they live in a neighborhood where there's lots of gangs and there's lots of ethnic, you know, um, complexity there in the, in the show. Anyway. Um, and, would it be accurate? Would it be Christian to make that film and not record cussing from the gangs? Would that be an accurate, a truthful way of looking at the world? I don't know if it would be. Like, I think, I don't know. Like that to me, feels almost dishonest or like it feels like you're not capturing the real world and all its grit and grime. And you could argue, well, you can do that. It doesn't need to contain swearing. You can make your point and whatever. That's not, you know, um, I'm just saying that things are a lot more complex when you when you integrate this, you know, psychology and the heart and culture and linguistics and all these things um, when we think about cussing. So, all that to say, check your heart. Um, why, if you do swear, you know, why are you doing it? We do have biblical evidence of biblical writers using words that were pretty um, offensive. Uh, Scubala that Paul uses in Philippians 2, uh, 3, chapter 3, verse 8, according to Dan Wallace, one of the most foremost evangelical Greek scholars in the world, says scubala is somewhere between crap and S-H-I-T. 
not quite as strong as S-H-I-T, but it's um, stronger than crap. Like Paul says, all my, you know, all the good deeds that I did leading up to Jesus were scubula. And I think his strong language there is, especially if you look at the context of th- Philippians 3, 1 to, 9, 1 to 12, um, it's, it's re- he's really getting passionate. He's really getting fired up about the worthlessness of all of our righteousness before Jesus. Like we bring none of that to the table. And I think that if he used a softer, softer word there, it wouldn't have had the same rhetorical effect. We have, and I cite a lot of passages in my relevant article um, that we see evidence in the Old Testament where there's some pretty, goodness, um, I mean, there, <laughs> yeah, there, there's, there's some pretty strong language and even strong explicit, like X-rated imagery throughout the Old Testament, especially passages like Ezekiel 16 and other passages in, in that book. Ezekiel, he kind of had a potty mouth. Um, so, um, okay. So I, 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 so I didn't really answer your question and I don't, I don't think there is a clear cut answer. Um, in summary, I don't, we'd be careful just applying certain verses to something that is happening in a modern day world, you know? So I, I get nervous just mapping Ephesians 4.29 onto modern day cussing. Be aware of the complexity of language and culture. Um, check your heart. And um, if you do that, I think you'd be good. Okay, next question. Where did Adam and Eve's desire to sin come from? Uh, and this is part of a, a larger question, but that's basically the gist of it. Um, And you go on to say, uh, sure, we were created with free will, but how or why does my free will inherently come with a built-in temptation to rebel? Bottom line, I don't see how it can be logically argued that God didn't create our sin nature. I think, so I I get nervous about kind of philosophical speculation on these kind of questions where the Bible is just not crystal clear. We know Adam and Eve were created good. Okay, we know that from Genesis 131. Everything is good, very good. Um, we also know that through, uh, sin, death entered the world. We know that through Adam and Eve, that's how sin was ushered into the world. Well, did it exist before that? If so, how? And there's, there's all these like unanswered questions that the Bible just doesn't directly address. And so we're left up to kind of theological or even philosophical speculation. And that's, that's just not really my realm. Like I don't, I don't really get excited about it. And I also don't, I'm just not the right person to kind of address those philosophical um, assumptions or or philosophical speculations. Now, um, I would say this, here's what I would say. I think there is a difference between having a sinful desire versus having the free will to commit sin. You see that? I mean, and some people could say no, and I'm going to say yes. And you know, I, I I see a difference there that just because somebody has free will and ends up acting upon that free will and ends up sinning doesn't mean that they necessarily were acting on a sinful desire. Yes. Sometimes our, you know, uh, sometimes when we sin, it's because of a, uh, sinful, because, because it was, it, it was birthed by a sinful desire. James one talks about this. Other times we can just commit a sin and it's not necessarily the byproduct of a sinful desire. Now we're talking about post fall, a post fall situation. So, I mean, even if you could say that, um, all sin is a result of a sinful desire, then we're still dealing with the post fall situation. But I mean, I think in Adam and Eve's case, I don't think you necessarily need them to have a sinful desire to act sinfully on, you know, by having free will. We know that Adam and Eve were created innocent, but they weren't created perfect. 
So they weren't created unable to sin. Like it was almost like neutral. Um, so we do, I wonder, because we do know from first John, is it two? Um, that they saw the fruit. Oh no, this is, I guess this is Genesis two, but first John two kind of, kind of draw, draws out the language from Genesis two, but where, you know, she looked upon the fruit and it's, and, and, and it kind of, it's almost like it ignited a desire in her. So it's almost like the temptation to sin birthed the desire in Eve, and then she acted on the desire. That's at least one way to kind of understand why she went for the fruit. She was also deceived by Satan. And because they were innocent but not perfect, they were um, culpable of deception, being deceived. So if you follow the biblical language, it seems that the emphasis isn't that they had this intrinsic sinful desire that God created them to have, but that um, they were deceived into um, desiring the fruit and committing the sin. So that that's kind of all I got. I don't. I mean, I. I um, yeah, I don't think. Uh, I think it would be really tough to argue biblically, like from the whole Bible, that God created. Adam and Eve's sin nature. I don't think the fact that they did sin demands that we conclude that they must have been created with a sin nature. Next question. Any chance you can do more of your books in audio format? Um, I only see fight and erasing hell on audio. I would really love to read your books on LGBT issues, but I have a difficulty getting time where I can sit down and just read. Um, but you, yeah, you have time to go through audiobooks because, you know, when you're driving or taking care of the chores. Uh, you know, that's not my call. That, that's really a publisher's call. Um, they, uh, they typically um, do an audio, you know, it costs a decent amount of money to do an audiobook. So the publisher, look, not, I'm not saying this negatively, but publishers are always going to ask the question, what is financially worth it? And when you're an author like me and my books don't sell very much at all, uh, you know, I, <laughs> I'm not... I'm not worth a lot to the, to the publisher. So, I mean, to, to spend money, maybe, maybe it's a couple grand or something on an audiobook. It's like, well, is it, are we going to sell, are we going to make that back tw- twice? Like, are we going to actually sell like $4,000 worth of audiobooks? And the, the answer is just flat out, no, <laughs> none of my books. Now, Erasing Hell is different because Francis Chan was a co-writer. <laughs> maybe I should say I was a co-writer. Um, and so that one, that one, um, you know, that was like a no brainer. Of course, we're going to do an audiobook on that. And then we actually uh, did the audiobook on fight before we, it was even released. And I think they were maybe expecting that to sell a lot more and it just didn't sell hard, hardly at all. I mean, just terrible. Um, so yeah. And I think since then, because my numbers for my book sales numbers are, are really low, um, any new book that I do or any, you know, since then, like the books that I published, they just, the publisher is going to take one look at my sales record and say, yeah, this doesn't justify an, an audiobook. You, you need to have, you need to be selling like in the tens of thousands or more to, um, justify, um, doing an audiobook. But again, that, that, that's the publisher's call. We did do an audiobook for Grace Truth 1.0. Now that's a self-published book available only through centerforfaith.com. Uh, go to the store link and you can order or download, I think, download or order the audiobook for Grace Truth 1.0. It's a five-week small group study. Um, but it's, it, it's, it's like a short book. It's not just like a Q&A, you know, discussion guide. Like it's, 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 there's content there. And I, I did read that, okay? Um, 
And so you can hear my voice again through the audiobook uh, for Grace Truth 1.0. We didn't do one for 2.0 for the same reasons that the publishers don't. Because we only sold like 10 audiobooks or something for Grace Truth 1.0. So it's like, oh man, okay, so obviously this isn't a huge need. So why spend, I don't know, I think it probably would have cost us like maybe a I don't know what it was, thousand bucks or something to, to produce an audiobook. But even then it's like, well, if we only sell 10 of these or 20, even 20 or 30 or 40 of these, it still doesn't justify uh, the cost. So sorry about that. Long answer to a short question, but it gives you a little insight into the publishing world. Next question. Um, I hope you're doing well. I'm a huge fan of your podcast. I know you don't love politics, but with all that is going on, can you discuss a little more about the candidate Pete Buttigieg? Is it Buttigieg? He is an openly gay progressive candidate who holds to mostly Christian values. Uh, He has a quote where he says that the scripture I hear has to do with protecting the poor and spending time with the prisoner and healing the sick and caring for the stranger. He goes on to say that Christianity belongs to the progressives just as much as it does to the right. Would love to hear your thoughts. I I actually follow politics more than I give off. Uh, Most of the podcasts I listen to are somewhat political. I do try to, you know, I check my Twitter feed couple times a day at least looking for news happenings and stuff going on in politics and around the world. So I, I do try to stay up to speed. Um, most of it is incredibly annoying. Um, but uh, yeah, so I've been following some of the, the, the uh, Democratic candidates uh, with, you know, Beto and, um, uh, oh, now I'm blank, uh, Elizabeth Warren and is Cory Booker still running and Joe Biden and, and, and who's the socialist guy, the, um, uh, Shoot, forgot his name. Uh, Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders. So yeah, I, I've been following this and, and all this stuff with, um, oh gosh, with uh, Trump and AOC and um, who's the, uh, I'm blanking on all these names now. The, the congresswoman who's created a stir recently with her, you know, somebody did something to some people. Some people did something, her reference to 9-11 that was interesting. And so I do follow all this and it's just, but I feel like I, I'm in exile living in Babylon and I'm kind of like eating popcorn like that Michael Jackson gif and, you know, watching a movie. It's like, you know, seeing like a tennis match go back and forth. And it's like, man, these Babylonians are just really sometimes out to lunch and crazy and hypocritical and morally bankrupt and all these things. So, um, so yeah, I do, I do find it entertaining on one level following all these political debates and everything, but I, I always look at politics through the lens of I'm an exile living in Babylon. So I'm following Babylonian politics. And I just, I, I use that just analogy because I think the Bible does, but also because it helps distance me from the national powers to be, uh, because Christianity is an upside down kingdom living in exile and we are not we are, um, we exist in contrast to the powers to be, if you will. So I like to always maintain, remind myself, because sometimes I'll get sucked into it. I'll, I'll get sucked into the political debates and I'll start siding with this person or that movement or this or that, or, you know, and it's like, I just, I want to, I can have an opinion and there's certain voices that I resonate with more than others and some that I find more helpful than others. But I'm, I always want to keep that distance between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. Okay, so Pete Buttigieg, I, I actually haven't followed him at all. I, I know the name, and I, I know he just recently started running, but I know nothing about him. In fact, you you know more about him in this question than I do. So I don't, um, I, I'm, uh, yeah, just in looking at your quote. I'm just very unimpressed 
when people try to take things from Scripture that they like and approve of those things from Scripture, but then if there is other things in Scripture, like statements about sexual immorality and repentance and sin and picking up your cross and dying with Jesus, then people just kind of ignore those statements. So I know when people want to kind of pick in a thread here and a thread there from Scripture like this one, you know, I heard Scripture talks about protecting the poor, spending time with the prisoner, healing the sick, and caring for the stranger. Yes, of course, Matthew 25 talks about that, and that that is a significant thread throughout Scripture. That's awesome. That's great. Um, but that's so you picked out one thread of Christianity and said you like that thread. I don't, so what? Like anybody, I mean, Hitler can find something in scripture that he would resonate with and probably the genocide in Joshua. Um, uh, uh, you know, any human on earth could find something in scripture, some theme that they were like, oh yeah, I like that. To me, it's just not, I just, it's just kind of a yawner to me. It's just very, very uninteresting. Um, and then to say that Christianity belongs to the progressives as much as it belongs to the right. Well, Christianity belongs to Jesus. It doesn't belong to anybody. So yeah, I think, yeah, so there's just so many problems with the statement. There's just I just kind of like, yeah, Babylon, Babylonian politics at its best. <laughs> um, so I don't, um, yeah, just not really impressed. I'm not really impressed with po- politicians speaking about re- religion. You know, like I, I would rather politicians just stay out of religion. <laughs> you know, I mean. You know, I, I hear people say, oh, Donald Trump's a Christian, everything. And it's like, oh, my gosh. Like, okay, well, whether he's a Christian or not, I guess I just wish he wouldn't tell anybody that. You know, <laughs> like, because, I mean, I I don't think politicians are in the best spot to best represent the crucified Savior. So I I, I just, just look, if you're a Christian, just kind of keep it to yourself. That's great. But I don't, I just don't get excited when politicians try to um, show themselves to be, you know, a, a, a you know, a Christian or sympathetic with Christians at the end of the day, sorry to be cynical, but I think they're just always trying to get votes on some level. Like it's almost everything that comes out of their mouth is some way to rise in power and gain status and position. So they might appeal to this crowd or say this to satisfy this crowd or don't say this because that'll turn off the, you know, like, oh, whatever, dude, like I, that's just politics. And so I'm just not really impressed by that at all. Um, uh, let's see. Yeah, I, I would. Um, he's a progressive candidate who holds to mostly Christian values. I'm still in in all my um, political and theological diversity, <laughs> if I could put it like that. I'm still a, just appalled at abortion, absolutely appalled. And so I would want to say, does he believe in killing innocent children who happen to be on the other side of? the vaginal walls. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I just, I, to me, that's just, it blows my mind that somebody can claim to be, you know, for the poor and marginalized or for the innocent and still be pro-abortion when even, I mean, when it's pretty well accepted that life begins either at conception or shortly after, even from people that are pro-abortion or pro, you know, pro, um, pro-choice or whatever, whatever wording you want to use. Um, you know, the debate isn't about whether that's a life that's life in the womb. The debate is about whether um, that life can be considered a person. And then it gets so subjective and arbitrary. Anyway, it's, it's, I've, I've read a lot of ethicists on both sides of this, and they all pretty much agree. <laughs> whether you're pro-choice or pro-life, that, no, that's, a, that's life in the womb. Like, you know, if we discovered that kind of life um, on another planet, we would say that we found life on another planet, you know, 
like it's there, it's it's a living organism there whether, whether it's a person or not is that that's where people debate and the arguments to say this is a life it's a human life but it's not a person it's just insane i think they're just ridiculous so anyway i and i haven't even heard i don't think i've ever even talked about my view of the abortion debate on on the air but so i i just i don't know like i when people hold when, when it's said that they hold to christian values i would just want to say okay let's just lay all that out um, where are they at on the radicality of Christian sexual ethics? Where are they at on um, the radicality of, of protecting the poor and spending time with the prisoner and healing the sick and caring for the stranger? Where are they at on the radicality of caring for all human life, both inside the womb and on death row and so on and so forth? So I don't, um, this is where I don't think there, this is why I'm not part of, I'm nonpartisan. I'm, I'm a centrist. I'm, you know, can see good and bad in most political candidates. Um, in most Babylonian authorities are going to resonate, you know, some reflection of the divine image that they bear. And then they also are in rebellion against God. And so they're going to have other non-Christian values. So anyway, all that to say, I just, I, I don't know. I'll have to check out Pete and see what I think about him. <laughs> Last question. Um, how should Christians feel about the fact that our diets enhance our risk of cancer, heart disease, and obesity? Uh, is this even important? Uh, me rambling as I wrestle with my diet and what I'm putting into my body. I do this because I value my health and want to live for a while. Rarely, though, do I view, view this from a Christian perspective. I am uh, never convicted or feel less faithful as a Christ follower after scarfing down a Big Mac or swallowing a Chick-fil-A milkshake. How should we as Christians feel about the fact that our diets enhance our risk of cancer, heart disease, and obesity? Is this even important? I don't ever remember hearing a Christian speaker or pastor give any valuable time to the subject. Really would love to hear your thoughts. Fantastic question. Let me look at this through two different lenses. Two different lenses to respond to your question. First lens is this. We are embodied creatures. We are embodied creatures. There is no spiritual you or invisible you that is completely disconnected from the embodied you. So I'm going to say spiritual formation includes how you treat your body. Spiritual formation and sanctification includes how we eat, what we eat, what we put into our bodies, how we care or don't care for our bodies. And there's been just on a science level, a lot of um, well, in the last 15, 20 years, a lot of um, scientific evidence that our bodies and our minds are so interconnected. Uh, the body keeps the score, right? That's the famous book by Bessel van der Kolk. Um, and it's a br absolutely brilliant, brilliant, brilliant book. And I thank my good brother out there who recommended that to me a couple of years ago. It changed my life. The body keeps the score. Our mental health and our physical health are intertwined. You can't have mental health without physical health. And if you don't have physical health, you're probably not going to have mental health. And, um, you know, he even talks about things like, if I remember correctly, you know, treating PTSD through yoga and stuff, you know, like even things like, you know, stretching and um, uh, making sure you're hydrated actually affects your spiritual acumen. Spirituality is physical. Things like diet and exercise and sleep are directly related to things like willpower. The ability to do good and resist evil that is connected to what you put in your mouth and 
how much you sleep or don't sleep, your mood, your temperament, your overall health, your energy, all of which play into your spirituality are affected by um, your diet and exercise and sleep patterns. So the first lens, again, is we are embodied creatures. So yes, we have made a mistake for many years, millennia, really, in talking about our spiritual lives as if they are somehow disconnected from our physical lives. The second lens I want to look at, or you know, consider your question, is through the ethics of not just food consumption, but food production. So ethics goes beyond just what you put into your body, but where that food came from. And here I, I am not, I am not good at this. I, I've gone through seasons and my good friend, uh, Luke Thompson, we've been talking about this a lot because he is way into this, um, talks about just the complex web of how our food is produced, um, the ethics of how it's produced. Not just ethics like, oh, the chickens are treated well, but are you, is, is, was the chicken raised in such a way that resonates with how the creator wanted chickens to be chickens? Um, and, and, you know, our, our, um, as we honor creation, as we live in with, with, with the grain of creation, the way creation is supposed to go, how is our, um, the production of our food and therefore the purchasing of our food, is it resonating with the grain, the rhythm of creation, or is it going against it? Cows were meant to eat grass. And there's a, do you know Joel uh, Salatin? Salatin, S-A-L-A-T-I-N. Look up this dude. Amazing. Some of his talks. I, I heard him give a talk on this a few years ago, and he is just incredible. He's a Christian. I think he's a Christian. Yeah. And um, he has kind of revamped the whole, you know, farming practices by just saying, let's just, let's just do stuff that resonates with the way it was supposed to be done. Like it's very natural. And, you know, like he even says, um, oh, I'm going to butcher this, but even the ways cows migrate and, um, uh, you know, I'm going to stop cause I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm going to butcher it. There's just something cool he talked about with just the very life, the natural life of a cow and how that resonates with the very created order and how we should not interrupt that. When we interrupt that, that's when we get, you know, diseases and illnesses and, you know, mental health issues and all kinds of stuff. Another good book. Well, yeah, uh, Joel, I don't know if he's written a book. Maybe he has, but um, I think he has actually, but he's got a lot of YouTube videos and stuff. He's fascinating. Uh, Everyday Justice is another good book. When I read that book, I got all convicted and I, I cleaned up my sort of practices of buying and consuming food. And then I just kind of faded out. So I, I'm getting convicted myself here. So if you're, if you're convicted, good, I am too. Because Walmart is right down the street and everything's way cheaper at Walmart. We buy these massive chickens, like chickens the size of small dogs, right? Because they're pumped full of a bunch of crap and, but, and they're super cheap because they're pumped full of a bunch of crap. And, and, you know, they are farmed with questionable, if not unethical practices. And they're not, they're not, allowed to live as chickens were designed to live. And then we wonder why we have health issues and not just obesity, but all kinds of other stuff going on. So, um, so yeah, so you, you know, going back to your Big Mac, I would want to know not just the ingredients in the Big Mac, (laughs) really don't want to know that. Um, but I'd also want to know behind the scenes, like what's, how did you produce this Big Mac 
and sell it for a dollar or two dollars. What, what? That's just not humanly possible if things are the way they should be behind the scenes. Um, what, you know, wh- where did this meat come from? What's the ethics behind how they can slam the prices down on this food and sell it and still make a profit? Um, so I don't know. I, I, um, what I like about the book Everyday Justice is that it says, look, we, it, it is almost impossible to live completely free from the web of injustice surrounding both the production of food, the consumption of food, and so on and so forth. But just being aware and doing what you can is, if everybody did that, then that's awesome. Okay, so so they didn't lay this thick guilt trip. Like, if you ever go into Walmart again, you're just like, you know, the worst person on earth. Like, it didn't, it didn't, the book doesn't do that, but it does give you just kind of a real balanced, healthy, um, uh, yeah, accessible look at, at these things. So to answer your question, I think, I think it makes a big difference. Now I, 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 I am one to, um, I don't, I, I don't want to go to the extreme of saying if anybody ever eats a Big Mac or downs a milkshake, then they're in sin. Okay. I would not, I would never, I would never say that, but I would say that, it's not just neutral. Like I think just the very fact that you're asking these questions is, 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 it's awesome. I wish everybody asked these questions. Like um, what is the, what are the ethics of food consumption and production? And at least asking that question and digging in a little bit and trying to align your life with the grain, with the order of creation, I think is something Christians should do. And shame on us for not preaching on this. I mean, how often do you eat? How often do you think about eating? For me, it's probably a large part of the day. Um, I wake up thinking about what I'm going to have for lunch and dinner. And, and I ask my wife, well, you know, what are we having for dinner? And, and you know, I'll think about, oh, am I going out to lunch with somebody today? Because I really want to go get some wings or, you know, get a good craft beer or something. Like, I just, I'm constantly thinking about food. And most people are too. And uh, maybe that's part of the problem. <laughs> um, but it, it, because food is such a huge part of our lives, I think it... We need, but by not asking ethical questions about food consumption, I think that that's just a huge blind spot in in Christianity. Okay, thanks, friends, for listening to this show. Hope it was helpful. Again, if you want to join the Patreon Theology in the Raw community, you can go to patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. Until then, we'll see you next time on the show. 